You've heard of BetaShares. You've probably seen the logo on our podcast. You might even be among their 1 million investors. So you can imagine that I'm delighted to say BetaShares is the official ETF partner of the Australian Finance Podcast. With nearly 100 exchange-traded funds, you can go to betashares.com.au and immerse yourself in ETFs and unique insights covering all of the sectors, themes, core and satellite positions you could want. Think cybersecurity through the Hack ETF, robotics and AI with the RBTZ ETF, and uranium with the URNM ETF. The list goes on. To explore the BetaShares ETF range, visit betashares.com.au, read the relevant PDS and TMD on the website, and consider if the fund is right for you. BetaShares Capital Limited is the issuer. Is there a Spotify wrapped for investing? If you want to invest in shares or ETFs, our friends at Perla are more than one step ahead of the curve. On average, people who use Perla invest $1,750 every month. That's what we want to see, proper dollar cost averaging. With automated investing tools making your life simple, Perla investors have well and truly mastered the art of investing small bits lots of times. So if you're ready to start growing your net worth in 2024, follow the link in your Spotify or Apple podcast player right now to discover how you can get started today. Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Hey, welcome to this episode of the Australian Finance Podcast. It's my pleasure to have you with me. It is good to be back, Owen. Today we're talking economics. We're talking um, all things economy. This is a a topic that we've broached once before, um, and we should have done it sooner again because there is so much interest in things like interest rates, inflation. Like even during COVID, we heard this scary term called a recession, and a lot of people were pretty scared about that. So, um, Kate, maybe I'll let you introduce our guest, given that you spoke to him previously, um, and then we can just jump into some questions from them. We've got some listener questions to fire away as well. Yeah, so uh, listeners might remember about six months ago, we had Dr. Sam Wiley from Melbourne Business School on the podcast, and we talked some a bit of a basic crash course on uh, economics, interest rates, all of that stuff. Um, and I remember we were talking about fixed uh, mortgage rates and all that sort of stuff back then. And there's been definitely a lot of developments in the last six months, and we had some great audience feedback from having Sam on the show. So Sam, mm. welcome back onto the podcast today. Thanks, Kate. Thanks for inviting me. Hi, Anne. Fantastic to have you with us, Sam. Um, the the topic at the tip of everyone's tongue right now is inflation. What does that mean? Um, and then uh, the idea that interest rates have to go up to protect us against that. And I know we've talked about this previously, but um, I guess maybe we can start off with a very kind of simple question, Sam, that is kind of narrow, is are you surprised that we are talking about inflation in 2022 as much as we are? Um, it's not surprised. It's, um, it was inevitable uh, to a certain extent, Owen, that inflation would become the big question after COVID-19 because inflation, as you know, means the prices in the economy going up, prices of cars, of houses, of restaurant meals, of clothing, of everything, of all the goods and services you know, goods like, as I said, cars and computers and phones, 
and services like Uber rides and restaurant meals and, uh, and holidays and the like and education and the like. So the price of goods and services going up in general across the economy, that's what inflation means. It's just like blowing up a balloon. There's some pressure that's forcing everything up, uh, everything out. Uh, and so that's what inflation means. And there's different types of inflation. And what we're referring to here is consumer price inflation, the cost of living, um, as they say. And that's the CPI. That's the thing that is put together by the Australian Bureau of Statistics. Uh, it's reported every three months uh, in Australia. And it's, and it's a big deal when it, when it comes out, uh, the cost of living. And it's an index. I know I'm banging on a bit here, but it's an index, which, which means it's, it's helpful to explain what an index is. So if, if I was to say to you, uh, Owen, you know, what happened to inflation um, last year? It's unhelpful to come back with computers up 6% and airline travel down 5% and cars up 4% and chewing gum up 3%, et cetera. You know, I don't want, it's unhelpful for you to bang on and on about it. It'd be good just to have one number that tells me how much prices and the cost of living uh, went up. And that's what the CPI is. That's what the consumer price index is. It's an average across 125 different things that an ordinary household uh, buys and it's a weighted average. So things that are really important, like healthcare and transport and housing, the really big ticket uh, parts of what you spend money on, they have a lot of weight in forming it. And things that, that are smaller, like you know, sporting equipment and restaurant meals and Uber rides, uh, you know, they're important in their own right, I know, <laughs> but they're a lot smaller than the other ones that I mentioned. So they enter the index with a smaller weight. And so Australian Bureau of Statistics collects it all by surveying lots of households. They create that weighted average. They publish it every three months. Um, that's the cost of living. And so going back to your question, am I surprised that that's, the, that's what's on the tip of everyone's tongue and, and the, the main concern about the economy? Well, not really, because prices are going up so much because there's been so much stimulus of the economy. I mean, what causes prices to go up a lot here? Uh, is what causes prices to go up a lot is that demand is growing faster than supply. So if people, uh, uh, if, the, if the amount that people want to buy of all of those things is going up faster than companies are supplying it, then there's a lot of competition for those goods and services and it drives all of those prices up. But there's another thing, and that's how much money there is in the economy. And so you can imagine that the price level depends upon uh, how much money there is in people's bank accounts and in their purses and wallets and the like. I mean, say that the, the central bank, which we'll talk about later on, the Reserve Bank, say that the Reserve Bank was to increase the amount of money that everyone has by a factor of 10. So we're going to add a zero to every note that's in your purse or wallet. We're going to add a zero to your bank account. Then obviously, the amount of money in the economy has gone up by a factor of 10, and the price of everything will go up by a factor of 10. So there's two things that are driving inflation. Is demand growing faster than supply? Is there a lot of money in circulation? And both of those things in COVID-19 went up a lot. There was a lot of stimulus of the economy and the Reserve Bank, the central bank, pumped a lot of money into the economy. So, so I know that's a very long-winded answer and I'm sorry <laughs> if I banged on about that for ages, but, but I think it helps to, to sort of lay, lay those things out. Yeah, I think the interesting thing is CPI has been coming up a lot in my circles because it's got to do with HEX and our, our university student debt. And we're hearing the headlines that it's suddenly going to be indexed by 
quite a much larger amount than usual this year. Yeah, that's true. Um, and, uh, and there's not really anything you can do about that, uh, except, uh, um, except uh, take the, the payments that come out automatically from your HEX. So as your income goes up, you pay more and more of your student debt down to a limit of, of 10%, 10%, once you make, I think it's 130K, then 10% of your salary comes out below about 45K. Because uh, I don't have any student debt, I don't have yeah. the, the biggest. I'm actually, you'll you'll be probably unhappy to know that I'm I'm one of the lucky generation, uh, like our new prime minister, Anthony Albanese. I'm one of the lucky generation who didn't have to pay for their education. Um, so apologies for that. Then I don't have any student debt. My kids have got plenty of student debt, but it's um, yeah, it's a student debt's like a loan from the federal government. The interest rate on the loan is the inflation rate essentially, mm -hmm. because the amount of debt goes up with inflation and they take the money out of, uh, out of your wages and salaries, you know, through the, through the tax system. And, and yeah, inflation's 5.1% over the last year. So your student debt will go up by 5.1%. By That's correct. We talk a lot about on our other show, which is the Australian Investors Podcast, about quantitative easing, which is what people call printing money. Um, can you explain maybe that process and why for many years that didn't produce the inflation that we're seeing today, um, but then maybe the stimulus checks are. Right. So, so quantitative easing is the creation of new money. Uh, and if we just sort of back up a little bit to what normal monetary policy is, uh, then we'll see that quantitative easing is extraordinary monetary policy. It's a very unusual and in many ways, very unhealthy thing that had never happened before the global financial crisis in 2008 in, in the United States, in Europe, um, and had never happened in Australia before COVID-19. So we didn't have any QE, quantitative easing in Australia, um, before COVID-19. But just backing up to normal monetary policy, it's the Reserve Bank's job to speed up and slow down the economy by raising and lowering interest rates. So you know, if the, if the economy is running too hot, there's too much demand, and now prices are starting to rise. Uh, and so we don't have price stability. We're getting a lot of inflation. Inflation's going up 3 4 5%. That's what's happening at the moment, of course. Then the RBA will push the lever up. They'll push the, the short-term interest rates, the cash rate up, which will have a whole bunch of effects. Uh, one thing is that it will uh, it, it cause people to save more and to spend less uh, because when interest rates go up, then savings just a more worthwhile thing to do. You know, interest rates are like an exchange rate. They're, the, they're an exchange rate between the present and the future. If you put some of your money aside, it'll grow at the interest rate into the money in the future. So if you don't spend the money today, if you delay consumption and don't spend the money today and save it instead, then it'll grow at interest rates and investment rates into consumption and spending in the future. And so when you put interest rates up, saving becomes more attractive. And so it, it restricts demand. It also increases exports and reduces imports because it affects the, the currency and it affects the amount that, that companies uh, invest. So when interest rates go up, the cost of capital is going up. And when the cost of anything goes up, labor or energy or capital, then companies do less investing. So it slows down the economy. The economy is running too hot then the, then the Reserve Bank will push the lever up of interest rates to slow the economy down 
to where it's not running too hot and prices aren't raising, rising too much. That's where we are at the moment. Right? Inflation is high. The economy is running too hot. We're pushing up interest rates. But going into COVID-19, we had the opposite situation. So the economy fell off a cliff after all the lockdowns started up. And so the lever was pulled down to speed up the economy. And, and it was pulled down all the way. And now it's banging on the, on, on, on the bottom. So the interest rates were cut to, to zero, essentially. They were cut to 0.1%, which is so close to zero. Let's just call it zero. And that wasn't enough. So, you, so the images you'd have in your mind is the governor of the Reserve Bank, Philip Lowe, pulling the lever down, and it's not enough. It's not speeding up the economy. The economy is still uh, falling into the abyss in, in February and March of, of 2020. So, so then he thinks, okay, well, what else can I do? And what he can do is create new money to try and stimulate demand and, st and stimulate inflation because he's very worried about a deflationary spiral, a, a spiral downwards where prices start to fall and companies aren't earning enough to pay their workers and then workers aren't spending, so prices fall even more. He's very worried about a deflationary spiral. He wants inflation. He wants to increase demand. He's pulled the lever down as far as, as he can. What's he going to do next? Well, he's just going to create money, create new money. And they do that. This is quantitative easing, so not cutting the interest rate, but, but quantitatively expanding the amount of money. The, the central bank does that by buying government bonds. Uh, it won't help us much to talk through the, all of the technical details of it, but suffice to say that the, that the RBA writes big checks to... Mm -hmm to buy bonds from Aussie Super, from AMP, from whoever else has got government bonds. And then the bonds go into the Reserve Bank, the central bank, and money comes out into the economy, into circulation, and, and ends up on, in bank accounts and ends up in people's purses and wallets. So it was, you know, people say it's the printing of money. It's not literally the printing of folding currency, but it is the creation of money. And it does pump up deposits. And a lot of it was done in Australia in the, in the COVID-19 crisis. Um, a, a huge amount. Deposits are way up. You know, deposits are up six or $700 billion from what they were uh, before COVID-19 started. So it's that process. It's, it's the emergency thing that a central bank does and has never happened in Australia before COVID-19. Quantitative easing is the emergency extraordinary thing that's done when the normal thing of cutting interest rates is, has hit the bottom and we can't pull the lever down any further. Mm. I'm conscious of um, hogging all of Sam's time here, Kate, but one thing that kind of leads on from this is we heard in COVID uh, this word a recession and people are familiar with it. I think in our minds, we tend to think of the image that comes to people's mind is more depression-like. We think of maybe like the 1920s or something really you know, catastrophic, I guess, for the economy. Um, Explain what we mean by recession and um, I guess whether that's technically defined or whether it's defined in practice, like what it actually means to people, um, why mm. that's such a big problem. So let's start with a technical definition and then we'll, then we'll unpack it. Um, mm -hmm. So the, the, you were saying, Owen, that, that um, you didn't want to hog all the time. Well, I'm conscious of hogging all the time <laughs> as well. I'll try not to bang on for too long. But the, the technical definition is that for two quarters, um, that, that means two lots of three months. For six months, the economy is shrinking instead of growing. And, and that's, that's, 
that, you know, ordinarily that would happen in a normal economy every five to seven years. Australia had this incredible period from 1992 through to the beginning of COVID-19, where we didn't have a single recession at all. You know, we had 30 years from 1992 to 2020, I guess that's 28 years, where we didn't have two quarters of negative growth. And, and mostly that is to do with Australian economy being hitched to the China growth story. China needed the resources that we have and, and, and we were, and our economy just grew and grew um, over a long period of time. So, you know, neither of you might have ever seen a recession. Uh, there's certainly lots of young people. I was people very young. Who had not until it was a surprise, right? When COVID 19 uh, came along. Um, and so, so, but, but they are more common than, than people would ordinarily think. Now, what does it mean to say that the economy is not growing? Well, we usually think about this in output terms. So, there's really three types of output we should think about. We should think about the production of goods and services that people consume, like Uber rides and computers and holidays and and clothing and but but and others and then then there's investment which is the building of new houses the building of machinery um, buildings etc but but also non-tangible things like computer software etc not all of investment actually leads to something you can see or touch mm. if you invest in 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 writing software for instance um, then then that's also investment so consumer uh, products uh, goods and services, plus investment in new productive capacity, plus exports, or actually net exports, exports minus imports. Those three things together make up the output of the economy. And ordinarily, that grows at 2 to 3% per year above inflation. So if inflation's at, say, 2.5%, and we have, have on top of that real growth, meaning above inflation of 3%, then the economy is growing at 5.5%. 3% real, and when you add in the effect of inflation, uh, which is just prices going up, it's not anything real, then 5.5% growth. That would be normal and healthy. Um, and, and that's great because it means that, that our wages are going up faster than inflation. It means that there's plenty of jobs. It means that the high immigration into Australia, there's plenty of jobs for, for people who are coming along and for the, for the population growth. And it's a very healthy, natural state of affairs. When the economy slows down and goes negative, that's very unhelpful. Unemployment goes way up. You know, the pie that is divided in society uh, between all of us, the output that's divided between all of us is getting smaller. It's very unhelpful. And, and that's the circumstances in which the, the, the government's going to start to spend more money to stimulate the economy and the Reserve Bank is going to cut interest rates. And th there is a concern that we're heading into, that we will be heading into a recession uh, sometime soon. If we do head into a recession, what does that look like for us as individuals? Because, I mean, apart from COVID, we haven't really experienced that before in, if we're in our 20s. Yeah, well, the bad thing will be the effect on the labour market, so, uh, which is very tight at the moment. Um, it's hard to, to hire people um, to do anything um, mm. at the moment. Mm. Uh, there's, there's so many. Um, so the labour market's very tight at the moment. Uh, and uh, wages, unemployment's at a record low uh, of 3.6%. Uh, wages uh, are starting to rise, not as quickly as inflation's gone up, consumer price inflation's gone up. And, and this is a legitimate concern and complaint of people that, that my wage hasn't gone up as much as prices have gone up. So wages have gone up about 3%. 
Over the last year, prices have gone up 5.1%. So you can see that in real terms, workers have gone backwards. And the frustration um, with that is, is sort of evident everywhere, including the, the recent federal election. Um, the reverse of that will happen when a recession comes along. Instead of the labour market being very tight and wages rising the, and unemployment being low, the opposite will happen. Then it'll be, it'll be hard to find jobs uh, and wage growth will, will go down. So there's that negative impact uh, of a recession. One helpful thing for people will be if you have a mortgage, then the, the RBA to speed up the economy in the way that we've been talking about before, instead of raising interest rates, they'll lower interest rates. And so, um, so your mortgage would, would go down, uh, your mortgage interest rate would go down if you have a variable rate mortgage. Um, if you had a fixed rate mortgage, then of course it'll be fixed. Uh, but that, that'll be two uh, primary effects. Um, one of those things that you just said there will probably maybe scare or frighten some people, Sam, which is the kind of reversal in the labor market being all of a sudden it's relatively easy to find jobs to maybe it's no longer easy to find jobs. Um, so one of the things that we spoke off air about was trying to kind of relate this to how people can prepare for that if it, if it comes and when it comes or when it comes. Um, how do you think people could, um, when they're thinking about their employment, when they're thinking about you know, the real world consequences of this, how could they prepare themselves for this? Okay, it's, it's a very deep question, Owen. Uh, and, and let me say that I think that young people have to take everyone, right? But of course, because young, your listeners have, got, have got, just got more years in the workforce ahead of them than, than you know, old baby boomers like me. Um, so you need to plan ahead about uh, your long time that you'll be spending in the workforce. And mm-hmm. it means that you need to, to stay current with skills. You need to think that I need to have skills that are in demand in the workforce. And, you know, when I was your age, people would, would do a trade or they'd go to university or something, and then they, they'd, they'd get the skills that they would expect to use through the whole of their career. Well, that's out the window now. So the same thing, do a trade or go to university, get skilled up, but then you have to stay skilled up uh, continually. Mm. Um, work on, on developing the skills that are needed in the economy. Otherwise, just the pace of technological change means that you'll be sidelined at some mm. stage. And it'll either be hard to find employment or it'll be, it'll be relatively low income employment. So you know, what to do to prepare? Well, now I'm talking about, you know, multi-decade thing or long-term uh, strategy as opposed to, to the circumstances surrounding COVID-19. But, but I think that's super important. And then a second thing is, as well as upskilling, a second thing is to remain flexible, to be prepared to, to move jobs or into, into new areas. And that's a state of mind, being flexible, but also being flexible in terms of being prepared to move from cities to move from Brisbane to Melbourne or to move from, you know, Sydney to Perth, uh, to be flexible in, in your arrangements, to upskill uh, and to be flexible. You know, I think that those are really key things. Part of the reason that, that inflation is not going into increases in wages, so we, so we haven't seen, like I was saying just a moment ago, that inflation's up 5.1%, consumer price index, but wages are only up 3%. Now, there's more than one reason for that. And, and the same thing's happening in, in Europe and in the US, for instance. 
And a part of that is that people have a long-term concern about their job security. In the back of their mind, there, there is this fear, will I be relevant in the workforce? Will there be lots of work for me and the skill set that I have going forward over many years? And, and part of that fear about whether there'll be plenty of work for them is stopping people from asking for wage increases that they might otherwise ask for. Uh, and so we're not seeing the, the, the we're not seeing a, a price wage spiral where prices go up, people demand higher wages, which drives up prices, which drives up wages. I mean, that may still be in the future, that may still come, but it's somewhat muted by this fear about, uh, about people's relevancy uh, in the economy long-term. And, and really, the only way to deal with that relevancy, as I was saying, is keep your skills up, you know, keep a, a flexible uh, uh, frame of mind. Mm, I think it's interesting because COVID's probably scared a lot of people off from asking for more when it comes to their salary because so many people did lose their job and we were everyone that was employed was very grateful to still mm. have a job throughout 2020 and 2021 and now it's kind of put that fear of uh, fear mm. into us of asking for more. Yeah, uh, I think that's that's definitely right, and that's a and that's a, a long term um, uh, concern for people uh, about whether there there is this position for them. Uh, in the workforce. I mean, COVID, another sort of layer on this is that COVID has changed people's work arrangements so much. So in, in renegotiating your arrangements with employers, it's not all about money. So it's about, uh, it's about can I work four days for a week or can I live in, in Tamworth and work in Sydney, um, for instance, or can I, can I live in Townsville and, and have my job in Melbourne, for instance? So Workplace flexibility has become, because it's so much more feasible now um, to live where you want and to work somewhere else or to, to, to work the hours, uh, to spend the hours in the office or in the factory that suit you rather than suit the, the employer so much, uh, that's a big factor as well. And that's affecting uh, wages as well. It's not just, it's not all about money. Mm. How about Sam? The other thing that we tend to do with our capital, if it's not necessarily human capital, it's financial capital, we uh, we invest. And that's the thing that we talk about a lot on the show. Uh, we've seen in, for example, uh, you know, more high price, richly valued securities like the technology companies in the world. And if some of our listeners, I'm sure, would have investments in uh, cryptocurrencies and really speculative assets too, um, there's been a lot of volatility there. And even in standard blue chip names, there is oftentimes some volatility around. Um, and property prices, there's concerns there about will property prices fall if interest rates go higher and so on and so forth. Can it, what, What's your perspective on this? Can people feel comfortable investing for the long run now, just like they did a few years ago? Or has, has this is there something else that they need to be really mindful of? Well, look, there's a lot of dimensions to that. So let me try and tick off a few uh, without, without attempting to <laughs> It'll take up the rest of the show for me to, to try and uh, say, I'll try not to say too much. Let me start off with cryptocurrencies because uh, you mentioned that, Owen. Mm. So, you know, the, we were talking about the, the supply of money being controlled by the central bank. So in Australia, the central bank is the Reserve Bank and in the UK, it's the Bank of England. In Europe, it's the European Central Bank, the Bank of Japan, the People's Bank of China, the Reserve Bank of India. The US Federal Reserve Bank. So in, in every currency, 
we should say we could say every country, but it's really every currency. You know, in Europe, you've got lots of countries, but they only got one currency in the eurozone. In every currency, you've got the central bank who controls the supply of money, and they don't want to lose control of that. And and cryptocurrency represents a, a creation of new currency that's outside the central bank's control. Now, people should remember that that central banks and central governments won't put up with that forever. I mean, for one thing, central governments, like the Australian government, the US government, the European government, then when they create new money, when you take a sheet of plastic and print it up into 50s or 100s, print it up into 50s and then chop it up, and now you've got all those pineapples, all those, Mm -hmm. those $50 notes, who gets the value of turning a sheet of plastic into $50 notes. That, by the way, that's called seniorage that value of creating new money. When new money is created out of thin air, someone must get the value. Well, you'll be unsurprised to know it's the federal government gets the value. Now, when someone creates a cryptocurrency out of thin air, who gets the value? Well, the creators of the cryptocurrency. Now, do you think that federal governments are going to allow the creators of cryptocurrency to take away their monopoly to create new money? and to control the amount of money in circulation. So, you know, cynical old economists like me look at that and think, you know, they're just not going to put up with that forever. So we need, we need to, I just, I say that because it's related to what we were previously talking about with the supply of money uh, and inflation and people investing in cryptocurrencies need to, to bear that in mind um, that, that it won't necessarily um, be put up with forever. Okay, so other things. So investing in shares. Now, look, inflation wouldn't really affect investing in shares so long as it flows through the system. So if you're a company and your revenues go up by 10% because of inflation, let's say we had 5.1% inflation last year. Now, let's say you're Coles and the price of everything you sell goes up by 5.1% on average. So so your revenues go up by 5.1% and and your costs go up by 5.1% because people are selling stuff to you at 5.1% more. You're selling it on to consumers through your stores at 5.1% more. Your workers are getting paid 5.1% more. Your profits are going up by 5.1%. It wouldn't really make very much difference to you. As an investor in a company, getting dividends every year, the the price of the shares will go up by 5.1%. The dividends will go up by 5.1%. But that depends on the ability to pass costs on. What if what you buy from your suppliers goes up by 5.1%, but then then your your customers refuse to accept a 5.1% increase and they go somewhere else. They go to Audi or they they do something else. They go to the Sunday markets or or they buy from Amazon online. If you can't pass your costs on in an inflationary environment, then your profits are just going to go down. So, so this is a really big issue at the moment, and, and, and it's an evolving issue. We don't know whether companies will be able to pass on these higher costs. And so it's a, it's a level of uncertainty that we can't really get around. And you can see that in the volatility of the market. You know, the market's up, it's down, because one day people are quite bullish, and they're thinking, yes, those costs will get passed on. Yes, the economy will continue to grow, and there'll be the same growth in profits. So there'll be real growth in profits. There'll be the inflation growth in profits because the costs can be passed on. Next day, everyone's bearish. Oh, no, we're heading to a recession. 
and we won't be able to pass the costs on. So, so it's all going to go down. So it's very volatile because of that switching backwards and forwards uh, between being bullish and being, being bearish um, about it. Um, I can give you my view here. So I should say that, that we are about to step away from the world of economics and, and, and science and into the murky world of Sam's opinion. Uh, and we need to be clear on that. So, so here in Sam's opinion, um, you know, I'm concerned about it. Uh, so I wouldn't be inclined to increase investments in shares, especially in the US. So I, I think that the US shares are more vulnerable to increases in inflation uh, than Australian shares. Uh, they're starting from a much higher point, uh, from, from a much more pumped up value uh, or overvaluation of US shares. Um, and, and the Australian market's not. And, and the, the US market's more vulnerable to increases in inflation. There's a lot more quantitative easing that has to be unwound in the US than has to be unwound in Australia. Remember, QE only started in Australia in COVID-19 and it started many years before that in the US. Uh, so for, for a variety of reasons, I'm much more bullish about Australian shares than about US shares. And it does depend upon um, how, in, how inflation plays out. Now, let me just say one last thing, um, and I'll just say it very quickly, and it's this, that, that people think that interest rate increases will, will, will tank the property market in Australia, that if mortgage rates, the, the, the RBA increases interest rates by 2 or 3% to fight inflation, mortgage rates will go up by 2 or 3%, that's correct, and then house prices will go down by a huge amount, by you know, some people are saying 15 or 20 percent. I think that's very unlikely uh, for a good reason, and, and it's this reason: it's that when the demand for 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 shares, for instance, let's just jump back to the stock market. When the demand for shares goes down because people are worried about about inflation or growth or something else, the supply stays the same. There's still the same number of shares available for sale. So to get back to an equilibrium where demand and supply for the shares equal each other, price has to go down a lot. Prices have to go down until some people who previously wanted to sell now want to buy. All of the getting back to equilibrium from lower demand is, is, it occurs in the price changes. Now, when you go to the property market, to the residential property market, that's not true. When prices start to fall because of lower demand, interest rate goes up, People aren't buying as many houses, demand's down, prices start to fall, supply goes down. People step back from the market. You know what? I was going to sell my house in Randwick and, and move to Fremantle in Western Australia, but now I'm not because my house price has gone down. I'm going to wait till it goes up. You know, I was going to move from, from, from Carlton in Melbourne to Noosa in Queensland, but now I'm not because my house price has gone down. When the house prices go down, people pull back from the market. Supply goes down. What meets a fall in demand in the housing market is a fall in supply. Now, I'm not making this up. This, is, this has happened over and over again in Australia and around the world. This is just a very well-known thing that, that, that reductions in demand, which will come if interest rates go up a lot, won't be as met as much as people think by a fall in price because it'll be met by a fall in supply. People will withdraw from the market. Hmm. So I don't think people should worry about prices, increases in prices, tanking the, the real estate market as much as, as they have been worrying about. 
It's interesting as someone who's looking at property right now for their first home, I kind of, I want property prices to fall, but I guess on the other yeah. side of that, there's a lot of people that own property that do not want the price of their asset to fall. So it's quite an interesting um, looking at both sides of it. Yeah. And it's, and it's hard to, um, and it's hard to time it, isn't it? Um, mm. Look, I, th I think the, the main thing, Kate, is that you shouldn't be worried. You shouldn't have a fear of missing out at the moment. You shouldn't be worried that prices are going to zoom up. So, so you should take your time. That's, that's what I would do if I was you. And the other thing that I would do is I spend a lot of, I know you didn't ask me for your advice on this, but I'll just give you some <laughs> right, I'm happy for free advice. advice. Anyway. <laughs> the, other thing, the other thing you should do is if you don't know where the bottom of the market is, you should put in low ball offers. This is, this is a sort of a, a general idea. So inflation, so the inflation's up. So we know interest rates are going to go up because the Reserve Bank's told us. We know that that's going to make demand for properties very soft, and we know that that will cause prices to fall. Now, I was saying a moment ago, people are exaggerating how much prices are going to fall because they don't understand the supply and demand dynamics. Um, they haven't had a good look at the, the data over long periods of time. But look, prices are going to fall, and if you don't know where the bottom is, then it's a good idea to, to when you if you make an offer, to really lowball it. To, to come in with lowball offers. So you don't have buyer's regret where, you know, you, you were thinking of buying something. I'm just going to choose some numbers here. I've got no idea what you're thinking of buying. Um, but let's say you were thinking of paying 700K for an apartment. And, and you're not sure, what you don't want to happen is to, to buy it for 700K and then the price to, you know, sometime soon, similar apartments to be selling for 620K. 600k and a way to avoid that is if the property is selling for 700k then come in with an offer that's only 80 to 85 percent of that yep. so come in with an offer of under 600k now if you were worried that the market would go up while you were doing that you would come in with a full offer because you're worried that someone else will buy it and you won't get it. You might even come in if it was 700K, like a year ago, if it was 700K, you might even come in with 710K because of the fear of missing out. Well, that's all gone now. And the opposite of the fear of missing out is the fear of paying too much. And the way to avoid the fear of paying too much is to take your time. And when you make offers, lowball it. And when you, just, just say one last thing, I know I'm going on here a bit, <laughs> but, but when you speak to the realtors, okay, if the offer is far is too low, the realtor will say to you, "I'm not taking that offer to the vendor." Mm. You know, so if you so 700k, if you come in with 550k, the realtor is likely to say, "Oh, look, Kate, I'm not taking that to the vendor. There's no way she will accept it," and that's that. Okay, but that tells you something mm. about their bottom line on the other side, doesn't it? And so if you up it a little bit, and then they say, "Okay." Well, now I will take the offer to the vendor. Now you know you sort of crossed a threshold here as to what's even possibly acceptable to the seller of, the, of it. So you need to test that threshold. And, and one way to test it is whether the real estate agent will take your offer uh, um, to the vendor. You know, I, I know a lot of properties are sold uh, uh, by auction um, as well. And, and you need to do similar things when you go to auctions. Uh, a year ago, you would, you, would, you would go into it thinking, I may have to pay 10 or 15% more than the, the reservation price. Now you should be going into it thinking, this thing might not sell. 
and then I'm going to negotiate afterwards. I'm going to make a low ball offer and it won't sell and then I'll go into a negotiation uh, with the vendor. Anyway, I just think that in this market, this soft market where you don't know where the bottom is, um, take your time uh, and don't pay too much. I think that's great advice, Sam. Um, I, I, I know I'm conscious of time. I might ask one uh, quick follow-up question from a listener. Um, and the listener question was, what should a 40-plus uh, age group be doing with their finances apart from saving and in regularly investing? Is there anything outside of that? Well, um, so saving and regularly investing is, is obviously a big part of your, of your finances. So you've got a long way to go. So let me sort of point to a couple of things here that, mm-hmm. that you haven't mentioned in that and that you want, to get, you want to get right. So you want to take the right amount of risk. So, so save plenty of money and, and then take the, amount of right, the right amount of risk for the long journey that you're on. Let's say you're 45, okay? You're going to live to be 95. I'm granting you a long life here. So. I'm but, sure they'll appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure that's within my power, but you're going to live another. You're going to live another 50 years here. It's, it's a long journey, and you're not even halfway through it. So don't pull back on the risk um, just because you're 45. Think about where you should be on the risk spectrum. Should I be a little bit to the right, taking quite a bit of risk? Should I be a bit to the left, uh, not taking so much risk? And what really goes into that is your age, 45 is pretty modest in, in age. So let's say you're 20 years from retirement um, when you're 45. Then you've got a long way to go. That means if something goes wrong, there's plenty of time to make up for the thing that went wrong. So take a, take a bit more risk on the basis that you have a long way to go uh, in, in the, you, you know, one notch to the right because you've got 20 years to go in, in, in employment. And then think about the stability of your income. So do you own a risky small business, which is high risk and high return? It's great to own your own business, but it does mean that you've got enough risk in making money and you, and you want to take a bit less risk in, in investing your money. It's more about wealth preservation if you've got a lot of risk in the making of money. Or let's say that you work for the federal government and you have very, let's say that you're a teacher in a public school, um, then you have very stable employment. And that means that you can take more risk in the investing of money. So the the small business owner is going to be more to the left on the risk spectrum and the the teacher in the public school is going to be more to the right. So your age, the stability of your employment, your obligations in life, and I'm thinking here of any kind of special obligations, like if you had children who had special needs or, or something like that. And then your level of risk aversion. I won't go on and on here, but... You know, what about your personality? Are you someone who can take a fair bit of risk or, or are you going to sweat it? And is it going to keep you up at night? That's going to move you to the right or the left. So get yourself to the right position uh, on the risk spectrum. And, you know, the most common thing is that people don't take enough risk. And, and the most common way that people don't take enough risk is that they just pay down their mortgage. So they buy a house and their saving is compulsory super plus the paying down of their mortgage. And then they buy a nicer house. They move to a nicer suburb and now they've got another big mortgage and they spend most of their investment journey. Like they get where, to the point where, where retirement is coming up over the horizon and suddenly they realise, you know, I've spent my whole investment journey over the last 25 years paying down my mortgage. I, 
I never did anything else. I didn't sort of put my money into something that was a bit higher risk, higher return. I paid down my mortgage and it just moved me further and further to the left on the risk spectrum, not matching where my age and my, and my personality and my obligations and my employment stability actually put me on the risk spectrum. So look, I, I would strongly recommend that. Mm. Get, the, get your, your position, get your, figure out where you are on the risk spectrum, make sure that your investments match that. And a very common thing is that people aren't taking enough risk. And the most common cause of that is just spending your whole investment journey paying down your mortgage. Mm. That's a really good way to think about it, Sam. And I don't think we often think about how uh, the source of our income plays into our risk tolerance. I mean, yeah. I haven't thought of it that way. It's usually just, how do I feel about, what's the, the typical question? Like, how do you feel if your money went down 30%? That's often mm, like mm, the mm. question to gauge risk, but actually mm. looking at more than that in your life holistically in terms of where do you sit on that risk spectrum and not just falling into the default category. Mm. Yeah, and that, so, so look, the, the difference between making money and investing money, um, it, it's, it's really important. Uh, and in a couple of ways, right? So in, in the making, so it, it, just think about diversification. So in your investments, you want to be very diversified. So you want to be diversified across asset classes, meaning across Aussie shares, global shares, fixed income, which means bonds, across residential real estate, commercial real estate, and then private assets like private equity, et cetera. So you want to be diversified across asset classes and then within asset classes, so in Aussie shares, you don't want to just own BHP. You want to own BHP and CSL and JB Hi-Fi and, and, you know, 15 or 20 different shares to be diversified within the asset class and across asset classes. That's, that's in investing your money. Now, now, think about making money. In your career, the exact opposite is true. You need to specialise. We were talking about this earlier, thinking about, about your, your, your sort of career journey, improving your skills. And that's about specialization. You, you have to specialize. And if you own a small business, then you have to work out what your customers want and really go for it with that. If you try to be everything to everyone, it'll be hopeless. And it's the same with your career. If you try to learn everything or specialize in everything, you, you won't be of any use to anyone. You've got to specialize in the making of money and you've got to diversify in the in the investing of money, and and they're, they're the opposite of each other. Uh, in those, you know, risk is the opposite of, of those two things. Um, and there's other ways that things are the opposite in the investing of money versus the making of money. But maybe we'll talk about that next time. I come back on the show. Yeah, fantastic, Sam. We've covered so much today. Um, Honestly, I could just sit here and just listen to you talk for hours. Um, and I, I um, am a bit envious of students who do get to, to hear you uh, talk and, and present. Um, I know that, that you have your own website, you have your own videos, a course. Um, maybe we can just um, give a bit of a shout out to that, Sam. If people want to learn right. more about you, where, where can they go to follow up with you and, and to learn more from you? Well, the, the, so I do have an investors course, which is called Finance Education for Investors. Uh, and so if you just Google finance education for investors, uh, Sam Wiley, uh, and that's W-Y-L-I-E, mm -hmm. uh, if you Google that, then uh, it'll come up and you'll come to our website. You'll see what the course um, is like. You'll see that, that, you know, I have a newsletter that you can subscribe to, a free newsletter that you can subscribe to. Um, so that's the thing. Go to, to just Google finance education for investors 
uh, Sam Wiley, W-Y-L-I-E. Yeah, Fantastic. We'll, we'll put links in the show notes as well. Um, yeah, we're, we're, we're so thrilled that you were able to join us again, Sam. So um, thanks once again on behalf of Kate and I for taking the time out and on behalf of all of our listeners for educating us on the economy, interest rates, inflation, how we can protect ourselves and how we can invest sensibly and particularly that risk uh, commentary on the end there. I think Kate and I are going to take that and run with it. Um, maybe a lesson for our small business. Good, good. <laughs> um, yeah, so thanks once again, Sam. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks that. for inviting me back. Really enjoyed it. Um, thanks, Kate. Thanks, Alan. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Australian Finance Podcast, where our mission is to improve the financial futures of all Australians. If you'd like to learn more, create a free account at risk.com.au forward slash account to download free episode workbooks, bonus resources, and take our amazing free personal finance courses. You can also join our online community by following the link in the description. If you enjoyed the show, what we'd love is for you to leave us a snappy review on iTunes. And you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Rask Australia. Kate and I are also on both of those channels. Finally, if you have any feedback, suggestions for episodes or guests to come on the show, or you just have a question for us, shoot us an email at podcast at rask.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth creating journey, but not sure where to put your hard earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.